Hey, certain listeners. So just a quick note. I recorded this episode and didn't know that there was a problem with my audio recording equipment. It resulted in kind of an echo, occasional echo situation going on with my audio. So if you are like me, you will not be able to listen to this episode because it will bother you too much. But if you're not like me, which I'm guessing most people are not like me, you'll just hear a slight echo occasionally as I'm talking. So just be aware of that. Hey, Deserving Listeners, I have a special guest with me today, Anthony Pennant, Dr. Anthony Pennant, a friend and colleague of mine, to answer your questions about autism. Thank you for having me, Dr. Honda. My name is Anthony Pennant, Dr. Anthony Pennant, and I am teaching faculty at Antioch University Seattle and their couple and family therapy department. I um, have an interest in working with individuals on the spectrum, specifically uh, children on the spectrum and their families, and I just recently have completed a study around using family-based treatments to to support families who have children on the spectrum. Okay. So there are a lot of questions about how do you get assessed? Um, it, that varies state by state, but I think the overall arching um, pathway to diagnosis is that you are with a qualified provider, which is usually a psychologist or a neuropsychiatrist or a medical doctor. Um, if it's a child, it's usually a de developmental pediatrician, right, which um, they are specialized in younger children and how they develop, right, um, milestone-wise. So it'd be um, a specialist correct. of some sort. It can't, you can't just go to any no. old therapist or any no. old physician. No. You have to find... And I'm guessing it might be hard to find those folks. It is usually very hard to find those folks. Um, a lot. Of, it's not really advertised, but I think that a good starting point is that if you if you are an adult, right, you are starting with a, perhaps a therapist or your own medical doctor, right, and you can get a referral that way. If you're working with a psychologist, that might be um, a, a good way to find some testing or someone who is testing for um, ASD, um, Autism Spectrum Disorder. Um, but usually the, the gateway is, is you go through a medical doctor, right, or a therapist, and then you're linked into some official testing with the qualified provider. And how long does that testing take? It depends. So for children, there are a couple batteries of tests that you usually use. In order to do the test and then to score them can be anywhere from, I'm going to say, about a good 5 to 15 hours of time that you do. Um, and then there's also interviews that you have to have with the family, perhaps with caregivers, with teachers, any other individuals that might interact with the child if it's a child. Um, and if it's an adult, right, you would want to get some interviews with perhaps family members or partners or whoever they're um, they're connected to just to kind of compile a, a good understanding as to like emotionally, behavioral, relationally, what's happening for them and how they're showing up developmentally. Sounds expensive. It can be. It can and be. It sounds like some people wouldn't be able to afford that. Yes, that's very true. Because if we're talking about a psychologist, for example, mm -hmm. or a neuropsych person, this could be 300 bucks an hour-ish. Upwards. And if we're talking about 15 hours... What about people that can't afford that? People that cannot afford that. The the good thing is that most of the time, if you can go through a medical doctor or get a referral from your PCP, your primary, that can be usually covered through insurance for the testing. There's usually a waiting list, you were saying. Correct. There yeah. usually is a waiting list. And unfortunately, in Washington State, the waiting list, um, like for example, at Seattle Children's, right, it's about a year, year and a half. Yeah. 
But when you're an adult, I find that a fair amount of people, they're self-aware enough to be able to diagnose themselves, so to speak. That is something I hear a lot from people. And I think that's a useful experience, right, to pull forth when individuals are adult individuals are navigating to see if like if they do fit, right, having that diagnosis of ASD. So Anthony. Yes. Dr. Anthony. Yes. Lots of questions about ABA, mm-hmm. applied behavioral analysis. Yes. I'm of two minds. I think that historically, the way that ABA was used was more about compliance and very behavior-based. So let's say like for addressing stimming, stimming with anyone that is on the spectrum, right? And we, to be honest, we all stim in some particular way. Mm -hmm. Let's just be real about that. But when it comes to stimming, it might be headbanging or or shaking of the leg or echolalia. It's a form of regulation, right? I just want to say that first and foremost. Um, ABA had been used. I'm not sure if there are many providers that continue to do this because there's been understanding about that, but ABA had been used to address the stimming as like a, a as a behavior that needs to be what's called to be distinguished. Like it needs to be gone, like extinguish it, don't do anything with it. It's a bad thing to do. And so there would be a lot of like consequences and punitive ways in which if a person on the spectrums was stimming, right, it meant like a timeout or some kind of particular action or labor right that didn't really get to the whole point that perhaps the person might have been anxious perhaps Mm -hmm. the person needed to be soothed it was a way of them being able to figure out what was happening with themselves or calming themselves down right and so that's an example of how the use of aba traditionally has been so basically the the model might Mm -hmm. be okay but the way it was directed it was targeting things that just annoyed people like i don't like it when he does that so I'm regardless, I don't care why he's doing it is I guess what they're coming from. And they're just going to use this tool of punishing a behavior because they, it just annoys them instead of thinking, well, let's look deeper as to why they're doing this. Correct. Help them to soothe themselves in a variety of ways. Correct. Correct. Or, or what's aggravating them to begin with. So get, you know, getting rid of that thing that's aggravating them. Correct. And the application of ABA also, um, this is a critique, I think rightfully so, is that it it is not about the emotions of the individual. It doesn't really tie the parent with the child, right? Or the, the individual with other people relationally so that there's a preferred or reward of the relationship and understanding versus like compliance of making sure you're never behaving in this particular way. Is there a good depiction in the media regarding autism? Whenever you talk about a good description or a good understanding, right, illustration of what it's like to be on the spectrum, there will always be this divergent amount of like, if it's good or bad or what it does do or what it doesn't do or or what it covers or what it doesn't cover. And to me, I've, I've stepped back and go, you know what? That's kind of like it is for describing a person on the spectrum. No two people on the spectrum are the same, right? And how they show up is not the same. I think it's because we're human, right? And no two humans necessarily are the same either, right? Like, however, I think there are a couple of cool things that I like, like, in the in video and film that like really talk about what it's like to be a person on the spectrum love on the spectrum 
mm-hmm. on Netflix. It shows, I think, some of the ways in which uh, individuals have grown over time, right? Since they've gotten their diagnosis, um, going through ABA, maybe doing some relational work, doing therapy, coming into their own, finding ex- accepting themselves and having people accept them. One thing that I really like a lot, this kind of like goes to like some of the, the family work that I've done, is that you see the parents really give a lot of like love and affection and belief, right? And like confidence that they know that their kids can do these things. It's unfortunate, but you see, this is a side note, but you see a lot of individuals who are on the spectrum be talked to and talked about like they don't know how to do things. To me, I think that's, it's so interesting, right? One of the things that we talk about, one of the things that are in the DSM that, that, that talks about people on the spectrum or that they they're fixated if you will on one topic right and they will consume all knowledge about one topic okay i just went to grad school and a doctorate degree and i had to do that same thing too right (laughs) so how are we how are we distinguishing that as a pathological thing versus what i just did right Mm -hmm. what many other people do right what medical doctors do right that they they consume all this information it's the one thing they do and breathe but one thing is one thing it's great and another way it's not so some people were saying that they would get yelled at for using a term like mild autism or high functioning autism i think that at the base of it it's how we talk about what's called what we call disability right which is about what people can't do Right. And that when you use adjectives or any kind of descriptive words to, to, to talk about a person, it handicaps them, quote, right, around what they can't do. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when we hear about high functioning or severe or mild or any of the other ways in which people talk about an individual on a spectrum, it is always that dialogue around what they can't do. Right. Mm-hmm. It's an impairment of some particular kind. I agree. I agree to a point. But I think also, like, we have to have some way to categorize this. We maybe need to do better about what words we choose. Right? I've heard people using different levels, like level two, level four. Kind There's of. like, yeah, level one, two, three, and four. Depends on how impaired, impaired a person is. But like until we, part of this is until we stop talking about the diversity of ourselves, how we emotionally or neuro- neurologically are made up, until we stop talking about it in a way that's pathology-based, this will always be a conversation that we're having. So if there was no stigma, then the gradations, labels would be less hurtful and less problematic. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, Anthony and I recorded for a while, and then I like was paranoid that something was going wrong with the recording, and so I listened back, and there was something wrong with the recording, so I don't remember what we've talked about in the first recording or not. So... When it comes to ABA, would you recommend it, I guess, knowing what you know? That's a loaded question, Kirk. And I think that part of it is that my view, I'll start here first. My view of treating an individual who is on the spectrum needs to be family-based first. And I think that even that's for an adult, right? There should be some kind of relational aspect as to what's happening where the person is in, like the community that they're in, right? Their their family members or loved ones, right? Because that that source of support is going to be able to support the individual and that there's impact, right? And, and Well, as family therapists, we're probably yes. oriented this way yes. in general. It's not just for autism, it's for ADHD, Absolutely. depression, personality mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. because all these things impact impact one's relationships, which in turn affect the condition. That's true. If you have autism and you are in a loving family that understands the situation, then 
it's just a difference, just a, a learning difference mm -hmm. or a, a different way of approaching the world that isn't pathological, it's not a problem, it's understood, mm -hmm. people know how to communicate about it. Whereas if you have uh, an individual that is in, in individual treatment, mm -hmm. but everyone around them is in the dark and has all the myths and misunderstandings, yeah. then that individual with autism spectrum will suffer greatly absolutely so that's what your dissertation was on yes and what exactly was the method i used a structural family therapy for those families and they got treatment for 10 sessions it was a, an abbreviated intensive if you will so by you or someone you trained i got some uh, i got two interns shout out to madison park and zachary lopez they're still working on the project my research oh, assistants exactly. um but they are they they're the ones the therapists that were trained in structural family therapy and how to use that model it was modified to incorporate the needs of an individual on the spectrum along with their families in that dynamic and environment and it was like because at 10 weeks, we got some measures. And what we found was that families appreciated being in therapy together, number one, right? That was a really fun thing for, the, for me to see and that I think that they experienced. They got to know each other in a different way. They got to understand that like the um, treatment was more about bringing them together and it not being about managing, if you will, ASD symptoms. What would be a typical session? How, how would that look? That's a good question. So um, maybe one of the presenting problems would be that the child didn't do their homework, right? and became rigid around like the sameness that like you know I don't want to do my homework because there's something on TV or a preferred activity if you will which mind you is like a normal thing that right. like, kids say, deal with <laughs> but sometimes they get a little more intense right based on it is true that like so, there's uh, just pause you on that mm -hmm. idea how does being on the spectrum affect that very normal thing for all kids. I don't want to do my homework. I'd rather watch TV. I think sometimes what I've seen, right, is it's been a really double down on things, right? Like there becomes the, the no is a lot more intense, right? And it is like, a, it's it's bigger. It's maybe um, more rejecting, right? Maybe why, it's not. Why is that? In general, school can be very stressful. And I think if you're on the spectrum dealing, that may have some social issues, right? Or like connecting socially with people or feeling overwhelmed, sensory issues, again, how verbal things school might be uh -huh. um it's taxing right and so they keep it all together throughout the whole time in school and then it's like we well, got to do your homework now no 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 and it's not about refusing to do the homework it's I about see. how heightened they might be it's unfortunate and just to side note i know that schools do try their best i think that they can be more willing to working with mental health therapists right around that but they also balance the needs of all the kids in the school. At what could they? Events. What are they doing? Or what? Could they I think do? like inviting them to IEP meetings, so individualized education plans, right? And yeah. listening from those who are treating and seeking out school systems, seeking out that like, hey, we need more training in ADHD. We need more training with those who are on the spectrum, like ways in which that they can not intervene because it's not necessarily treatment, but to be with them, be different with them. So, yeah. so it's just the teachers knowing approaches, correct? And they don't have to have the kids in another classroom it's just correct a different accommodation or something mm -hmm. like a mm -hmm. like what what could a teacher do so for example um perhaps someone needs like some sensory time right that it might be too overwhelming come second period for the individual and knowing what science to look for or how to ask and talk to the person like hey you know, I noticed you get a little squirrely around like third or fourth period. What's happening for you? And they might go, you know, I need, it's too much. It's too loud. Because as with ADHD, for example, it's not the difference, the neurodivergent difference. Mm -hmm. It is the way in which 
they're a round peg being shoved into a square hole. Absolutely. And then they feel like there's something deeply wrong with them, Mm -hmm. and everyone else thinks there's something deeply wrong Mm -hmm. with them, which which leads to defiant behavior and anger and shutting down or and then that creates actual issues that the system starts to react you know punish yep, and exactly. discipline because it becomes a power struggle at that point and reject mm-hmm. uh, emotionally uh, label as a bad kid that yep. kind of thing and then they're 45 years old and they go on the internet and find out that wait so it was just adhd the whole time exactly. it was just uh, autism spectrum mm-hmm. the whole time mm-hmm. and if i would have been diagnosed at the age of five or seven and had a supportive system around me i wouldn't have been feel different. like mm-hmm. there's something deeply wrong with me my parents wouldn't have locked me in the bedroom mm-hmm. for five hours at a time and made me feel like crap and i wouldn't have now a traumatic disorder it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. To, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Right, so getting back to the family therapy session, what it would typically look like. So your family therapist is there, you have the parents or the siblings mm-hmm. there as well? Correct, everyone in the family. Everyone's there, and the therapist in turn at Antioch is working with the family, and the issue of homework comes up where the parents are like, he refused to do his homework. Mm-hmm. She refused to do her homework yesterday. What, what might it look like? What's a typical way that might look like to help the family? So some of that is examining where the parents are in that request, right? And examining where the kid is, perhaps in in that situation, and where the siblings, if there are any, might be, right? Because uh, the parents are having an experience of, of, of a kid perhaps not being flexible enough in the particular moment or just not being compliant if you will right and it and then it gets transposed onto like this is just why you're so rigid and it's partially because you're on the spectrum and i'm having a hard time doing this and it may not be so getting them to slow down right and sometimes speak the same way because with, with parents sometimes one person is the disciplinarian and one person might be the more the nurturer right but getting them to be on the same page to kind of go okay what's happening for you kid child what can i help you with right which is good parenting Mm -hmm. for any exactly is it just that if there are cracks in the system parenting wise it'll become more evident if a kid has a neurodivergent issue i think yes overall and structural would say absolutely yeah having options and being attuned Mm -hmm. and not just automatically assuming that because little jane is refusing to do something it's because she just wants to be a pill exactly exactly maybe there's something else going on and so just taking a time to ask or 
how do you feel today? And when the families that I would work with, I would say, this is where we want to be, mm. where you can actually have, say, 50% of the time, your kid will open up to you mm. under those circumstances where they give you some attitude. You're just like, something going on? Mm -hmm. And 50% of the time, the kid says, well, yeah, I don't want to talk about it, though, yeah, or whatever. And mm -hmm. so you just have some acknowledgement. Exactly. But that's where we want to be, and you've never done that yet. <laughs> That's never happened. So we're not going to get there overnight. Mm -hmm. And you mm -hmm. could ask that question a hundred times. Exactly. And the kid will be like, why are they asking me that question? <laughs> um, this doesn't feel safe. I don't even know how to answer that question because I've never grown that muscle exactly. around to talk about my, or even know what's happening with me. So wherever, whatever age the kid is, we have to start there. And I tell the parents, this is a question you're going to ask a lot mm -hmm. of yourself. Mm -hmm. Like, I wonder what's going on. And then there's a way of asking the question and don't expect the kid to respond. Exactly. <laughs> like they're going to, in all likelihood, initially say like, screw off or nothing, <laughs> I'm fine, you know, because it's terrifying. Yeah, to, it to absolutely is. A, a, so it sounds like just regular family therapy. Also, I guess with the added layer of helping the parents to take a little bit more time, have a little bit more patience, understanding what the kid might be going through internally, emotionally. Yes. And I want to go back to what you were saying about like, how does this look specifically for the kid? I think the, the therapists were like advocates, right? For the children to be able to do that work, right? Part of how, what made it intense is that there was this, a lot of action, right? And pressure that was put on the system, if you will, we're just talking systemic ways, right? To make and do changes. And so while you got the parents to kind of slow down, right? And to be in a place to hear what from the kid, the therapist worked with the kid to be able to share with um, their parents about what was going on and 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 some of that can be difficult for those on the spectrum because again it's a, it's change but it's a little more heightened right around like how do i do this why do this it's unpleasant i don't like that right like or it's touching on different parts of my emotions that like aba never got to right but i know that are there and we don't talk about it kind of like you were saying and so pushing them to be able to talk through that discomfort and be able to share their real emotions, right? Shows them that, that this change is a good change, right? Mm. And there's a lot of ways to, to kind of slow down their own internal like anxieties and overwhelmed like states to, to make it rewarding to be connected to their parents, right? And then likewise, if there are siblings that are there, some of the siblings are brought into therapy to talk a little bit and witness that like their 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 sibling on the spectrum right isn't one dimension right that's part of the thing that gets hap happens all the time that family therapy it's basic family therapy to a point but some of the the conversations that are um, infused in some of the interventions and and what have you are are talking about how the person is a person You're on the spectrum yes you understand some of their needs and some of the needs they will tell you about yes and they're still a person. Mm -hmm. They are able to change. Mm -hmm. They're able to be, be seen in different ways. Right, because often there's this myth that people with autism lack empathy. Correct. Or they don't care about other human beings. Mm -hmm. They don't want relationships. Mm -hmm. Where does that myth come from? Movies. Yeah. Right. Like the this conceptualization that they're again those who are on the spectrum are strange. Right. Yeah. They think of things in a very different way. Well, true. Um, are there other reasons why? Because for me, the people that are higher on the spectrum that I've worked with, very brief. Well, there's one kid I worked with for a while. He he didn't have eye contact mm -hmm. much, not verbal until he was maybe 14 or something. Mm. 
And then when he did talk, it would be pretty limited. Mm -hmm. And also uh, sometimes perseverating on certain things. He would perseverate on someone at school. Mm -hmm. There was this kid that he would compulsively talk about mm -hmm. and obsess about, this one boy at school. He would have outbursts sometimes. Mm -hmm. I think if you understand autism, you understand that he wants relationships just like everyone exactly. else. He has empathy like everyone else. But from the surface, as a family member, you don't know what's going on. You're trying to connect with mm -hmm. him, and he doesn't respond in a way that you think he indicates yeah. that he cares mm -hmm. that you're even there, right? Yeah. What's your understanding of what's going on there for the individual that's creating that look as if they don't actually care or they're not interested in you? It's, to me, I think the bigger part of that is just being overwhelmed. I think it's a sensory response, right? That, you know, there could be 101 reasons, a million one reasons, really, if you're right, around why an individual might talk about one person at school and perseverate like that, right? But part of it could be that they enjoy school. That person is getting in the way of them enjoying school, right? Or that, like, this is a person they want to be friends with but don't know how to talk about things in common or like have the ability or want to like go up and talk to them. Right. Like there could be a million and one things. Um, and so it's to me an, a, a state of being in overwhelmed and how to collect ourselves, how to process through what's happening for them in the particular moment. But it's a lot. It's a lot. You're right. That's my understanding of at least one of the theories mm -hmm. is to uh, sensory input is turned mm -hmm. up or the brain isn't able to distinguish between things that are correct uh, uh, ignorable versus things that one should pay attention to. Correct. Know? Like right now, you and I uh, are processing a lot of sensory inputs. You mm -hmm. know, there's the, the lights mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. an airplane going off over and a, a fan going off over there. And <laughs> there's a lot of lights and things around. And of course, I can feel the chair and I can feel my shirt and I can feel my socks and the ground. And there's a temperature. And if I think about it, I can even feel my hair and my head. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of things that are happening. But for people on the spectrum, they might be paying attention to all those things at the same time. At the same time. Mm -hmm. including noises are louder, Correct. lights are brighter. As a parent, you come up to the three-year-old child and attempt to have a little eye contact and a bonding moment. The child looks as though they don't care, but they they're preoccupied. Preoccupied. Yes, and processing. You, the, the, the thing that was, <clears throat> I think is really interesting to, to say is that during that time when all the intake is happening, right, there's, a, there's still like, how do I process through this? Oh my gosh, it's too much. What am I going to do? Can this just stop? Oh my gosh why am I in this position and boop, 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 and just goes up and then you a glass that's really full of water right and then someone wants to come pull it like pour more it's gonna spill over right because it's a, like a shutdown like I can't take anymore don't want anymore a lot of our understanding of social situations mm -hmm. is developed when we're very young yes and throughout our life but also when we're very young and when we're literally nine months old and we're having eye contact with our parents and their facial expression is saying something and then ours says something and mm -hmm. you know we use a rattle and our mom says oh rattle and you're like oh is this oh, <laughs> so we're both concentrating on the rattle now you know there's a it there's bakes a it into mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. 
neurological pathways about how that all works and how other people work and how you work and how your facial expressions work and how eye contact works and mm -hmm. how understanding mentalizing and do they understand what's going on with me it's very complicated and it's and it's developed over time and we know for example if you have a kid that's neglected they True. don't develop normally True. along these lines and there's a there's a window of time first three months uh, is hard hard to make up for if you mm -hmm. don't capitalize on those on that plasticity that's present in the Correct. formation developmentally of those those kinds of pathways and you could imagine that if the individual even if the parents were suspecting that a child was on the spectrum but given all the stimuli that could be mm -hmm. overwhelming or or eclipsing the interaction with, with them and their parents or family it could just by that alone would essentially make it difficult to develop those pathways and, and that understanding and thus when you're older mm -hmm. you have more difficult time mm -hmm. uh, reading social cues as True. they say True. not because it's something inherent to autism but something that the oversensitivity to all stimuli would have made it more difficult to develop that those skills early in life does that make sense that does make sense yeah that just makes sense anyway so look at some of the questions here there's a movement to combine ADHD and autism spectrum. What do you think of that? I disagree with that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I don't know what no. I, I understand why people would think that from afar, but when you really understand ADHD and autism spectrum, you're just like, no, exactly. they're very distinct things. You can have both. Exactly. Come on. You can be confused <laughs> between the two. But Well, so just getting back to ABA, because there are a lot of questions about it. So do you know anyone in Seattle, for example, or do you know anyone who uses ABA that you would say, well, they're, they're using it responsibly. I do. And it's not cause she's a family member of mine, but, <laughs> um, my cousin, um, Naya McAuliffe, she's out in Kitsap County, although she'd be moving soon. Very sad to hear that she does ABA, but she is, it's not about compliance and breaking a behavior, right? There's a little more emotion and relational things that are put there. And that if, if a kid says no, or I'm not going to do that, there's like a curiosity as to like, okay, well, what's happening, mm. right? Not, not a, you're not complying kind of a line of credit and, 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 um, you know, trying to bring the parents in and be a, a partner, right, around um, the mastering of some of these skills has been really important. I would even say that the the way that she sets what skills need to be done is collaborative in approach, right? It's like, okay, family, what skills do you want to be done? I know this is what comes over, but what skills do you all see that are really needed in order to feel successful, right? And so I would say that that is the one a provider, and I know some other providers that do this, but try to set the goals that are based on collaboration as opposed to like compliance. Would some <clears throat> ABA practitioners or experts look at her work and think that it is enabling bad behavior in the kid? <laughs> Probably. Someone asked, how do you think autism screening can be improved to serve minorities? The process is discriminatory and fails to diagnose children of color, instead labeling them with a behavioral issue and often sending them away to different classrooms or schools, punishing them for being autistic, essentially. What do you think about that? It's true. Very true. Uh, you know, I have... This is from some of my personal experiences as a clinician working with some families who have a kid on the spectrum. Some of the behaviors that I've seen about that are displayed, some of it is displayed 
according to the culture of the family, right? And so the culture of the family has to do with maybe racial, ethnic makeup, gender roles, um, ethnicity, customs, and things like that. Maybe even style of talk, right? Or how people talk and when they talk. Um, and so understanding the culture of the family can, I think, is, has to happen while you are assessing the family. You got to get, this is why it's important to, to like talk to the parents, Right, it isn't about just interviewing the kid and talking to their community to figure out and asking questions. All right, or you're you you are from Ethiopia. Okay, do you are you from here? And what tribe do you belong for this? And what language do you speak? What custom is important for you? How do you celebrate? How do you grieve? All these particular things. It's important. It's important to know there isn't a difference just between just there's a difference, and it's not just what appears on the paper in the DSM, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, is, a, is unfortunately, but it is a very white centric way of looking at like, so? well, perhaps like um, the, the way that we're talking about like rigidity, right? Rigidity or um, even closeness of relationships, right? Like differ, for a lot of people, some of the rigidity that families have or individuals may have may be around keeping of customs, right? And how they show up in the home, but it doesn't mean they're rigid. Mm-hmm. It's more of a cultural expression, right? And the norm of the family. So, um, and I've seen that kind of like sometimes be pathologized and I've seen that kind of be missed, right? When they're assessing, when they go, well, this person's very rigid. Well, how? And then they give that example and it's like, that's not rigidity, that's maybe like what, what's an example for like example of like adhering to a particular like let's say a custom of the family right like, what, like celebrating like like celebrating something praying at a specific um, times a day uh, wearing certain things right having discussions in specific ways so for example um, when we hear um, black families this is very I, I I do this myself but the word disrespect. I mean, it happens across a lot of cultures, but black families in general will talk to their kids about disrespect, right? And so if you're seeing that the kid is quote unquote disrespectful, right? And then they're using the words, like the kid are using the word disrespect, their parents are using the word disrespect, the siblings are using that word. And it feels like there's just such rigidity around where they're, where they are and what's kind of going on. Um, you might say the other oh, is a compliance issue, right? They're not really on the spectrum. They're not really having difficulty adhering or understanding what their parents might need, right? They're just disrespectful and they're this conduct disorder, right? Or explosive intermittent explosive disorder, right? Or, you know, ADHD with aggressive type or whatever things like that. It's always because the way the family is labeling. Correct. Correct. So Kenny asked, how does the law of consent work for autistic people, depending on the type of autism, they say? The first part, I'm like, it's a strange question to ask because consent is consent for everyone. But, um, I don't. I, I would love more information as to what that means. Like, I there's I, so many things. I, if, for example, if you're a parent, I'm guessing, mm-hmm. and your child is autistic, and say they're 25, but they are in a situation such that they can't pay their bills mm-hmm. or have a job or mm-hmm. function independently, as they say, what's the thought around them providing consent? to have sex with someone they start to date Mm -hmm. and as a parent you're watching your 25 year old dating Mm -hmm. and the other person seems to have more wherewithal or something Mm -hmm. more power fair and you think what if they they're in the backseat of the car Mm -hmm. i don't know how i feel about this is it should i think of it well he's 25 or should i think but 
he kind of is like he's 12 in a sense so do mm -hmm. i is it okay to just say well you have autonomy i would say the biggest thing is when you think about like as a, a parent figuring this out for their adult child who is on the spectrum but struggles with independent living right um my thought is that number one guardianship would be in place um guardianship is a process in which parents can still um retain their parental rights over their child to a point depending on where the person is i would say um in adulthood so that allows them some rights to be able to do that as far as having that conversation it's a okay that's a really good question right i think that the first thing that comes to mind is like what's the emotional age developmental age of the person right and like you were saying if it was more like a 12 like how are we understanding what sex or sexual or touching right because that's the part it doesn't have to be about sex but just like your own body right and your like consent to things right your your autonomy how are we thinking about that how are we talking about that i think just have the conversation with individuals right mm -hmm. see where they're at right because maybe they might be emotionally around 12 or 13 but they understand what sex is and why they want that and why they want to be touched mm -hmm. right and so have the conversation mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The autistic kid that I worked with, he was a teenager. Uh, like I was saying earlier, he barely spoke, and I think he started to speak later in life, like 10 or 12 or something. But he went through puberty and was now interested in touching himself and would just do it anywhere. And it was, at first, people were shocked, and then eventually people were like, well, what are we going to do? And then we went on a program mm -hmm. to help him with it and so we explained in a way that i th that he eventually understood and we said here's the procedure yeah, yeah. you go into the bathroom you close the door this is what you do mm -hmm. and then you wash your hands mm -hmm. and you pull your pants up and you come outside and we're good mm -hmm. and so every once in a while he would just be like and he'd go into the bathroom and he'd come back and it was it was fine you know you give give them away yes. and and they they do it yes you know? and and he was you know really good about that whereas if you punish yeah. for example and shame or turn away then you're going to create a complex there yes yeah. you will so with consent as you're saying it's like well have a conversation with them yeah do they know what's going on? Mm -hmm. And if they don't seem to have any awareness of what's going on, then I would intervene. But if they ha can develop the understanding of their bodies and their rights mm -hmm. and what they want, then they can begin to figure that out on their own. Exactly. The way everyone does. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Deserving listener Josephine from Sweden says, My brother has fragile X syndrome, which makes him severely autistic. He has the mental capacities of a child and has always had a small vocabulary. He hasn't known how to express his feelings with words his entire life. He's 34 now. A few years ago, up until today, he got, a, he got to ride horses at 
writing school weekly. Since then, his vocabulary has expanded and he can express his feelings with words. Like when he talks about our deceased brother, he will say, I miss my brother, he will always be in my heart. So my question is, how can horseback riding make such a difference with someone with autism? Okay, cool. You got a listener from Sweden? I didn't know you had pullback there, Kirk. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I would say that there, there's, a, there's a distinguishing thing. Fragile X and um, autism are two different things. Uh, fragile X is um, what's called Down syndrome, right? And so... Um, it's got its own presentation and its own like particular issues. That doesn't mean that again you can't have things that are comorbid, right? I want to be very clear about that. But there are two separate things with regard to why equine therapy, like using horses, um, could could help reg- uh, could be of use for individuals. Again, this goes back to the thing about how we all learn. Right and how I've ridden a horse, a horse before, and it was the most regulating thing in the world. I was scared; it was huge. Yeah. And it had it mind on its own. I just started giggling. Like, I, I couldn't stop giggling. I'm, I, it was so exhilarating, and, and it was moving on its own. Exactly. And I, I got the fast one, and it just started mm-hmm. running. And yeah, I just couldn't stop laughing. I'm like, ah, <laughs> ah. I mean, it's true. I, I, I vibe with that. But it, it's there's something regulating about knowing that you're that high up or that this thing is moving and you can control it. And it's just, it's regulating and it's great. And I think that perhaps is why equine therapy might work for this individual because it regulates them and grounds them in a way where that overwhelmed internal sense perhaps mm. is turned down maybe a lot maybe slightly and just enough so they can make better decisions and talk about things and just to kind of grow Mm. and part of it is also i think probably maturity when i think about that 34 years old so you know we all mature we all develop and perhaps that's just the milestone that he's hitting at this particular time too what are the common myths that you still run into Common myths are if a person's on the spectrum, they will always be that same person. They can't really like branch out and do different things. What do you mean? Like they're limited to they're limited to maybe always wanting to know about guitars or they'll always play this particular video game or they'll always greet you in the same particular way or have these rituals about things and they'll never be able to change about so it. So people will kind of give up trying to help them Correct. spread their wings. Yeah. Yeah. What other myths? I mean, there's the common ones like they all have a savant aspect like Rain Rain Man being able to count things and there's that myth. There's only a small percentage of people with autism spectrum that have I would say humans. (laughs) I would say humans. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Right. But but a a higher percentage though, right? Of people with autism That is true. Have have higher IQs. uh, My understanding is that or maybe everyone has the capacity but if you've have that overwhelming aspect to to data coming in you might find it comforting to kind of go toward your strength Mm -hmm. and say well i'm i feel like i'm pretty good at being able to identify the day of the week regardless of what year you know you just say january 2nd Mm. you know 2055 you know i'm very good at that Mm -hmm. and so i'll hone that skill because it's kind of regulating for me to do something that I can concentrate mm-hmm. on and so so maybe everyone has that ability but they just never realize it or or develop it mm-hmm. further because it's not important that you know like I have a cousin who can multiply any numbers um, you just give him any two numbers and he he can within two seconds give you the what? yeah <laughs> and I don't think he's particularly good at math you know like he's not good at calculus or he, he just has that 
one skill and he's not on the autism spectrum and so maybe all of us have that capacity mm-hmm. but for people on the spectrum they just develop it further yes I, I think that's a possibility there's another myth as you were as you were talking about that, that came to mind a little bit is that if is, this is usually in the presentation for those who may have severe um autism right and um, might be comorbid with some other things but that they're they're unpredictable and dangerous and violent right mm-hmm. and they you see a lot of that within school like that, sandy hook yeah kind of. like or like oh like you're gonna like hurt me and you're gonna do all these things or if i ask you to do something you're not gonna understand and that's the way you're gonna be able to talk to me is through violence right and that's so not true right so not true there are a number of questions about girls and women Mm -hmm. on the spectrum and how they're often ignored and misunderstood and how it might present differently um it's absolutely true based on um you know the dsm how they got to understand you know through the research studies right around the apa if you will around how do we how do we solidify this diagnosis or what are we seeing in this in this diagnosis of of autism was mostly males right and it was not it was not about anyone that was was woman at all so I think that socialization plays a role into that, right? Definitely around how agreeable perhaps a person can be based on how they're based on their gender or perceived gender, right? Um, some of the uh, things that they decide to do around the house, right? Perhaps, right? Or how they move about in their lives or even in school, how they show up, right? Like, again, how agreeable or compliant they might be. If someone came to you <laughs> and said, I think I might be autistic and they're say 40 years old Mm -hmm. what would be a few questions that you would ask as an initial screen that you if you got certain answers you'd say well i can't obviously diagnose you but you do have some of the indications so i would get an assessment because some people are asking questions like what are the simple ways of differentiating between someone because there's a fair amount of people that will say i have autism Mm -hmm. and then when you actually ask them a few questions. You're like, um, mm-hmm. no, you don't. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like with ADHD. So yeah. There are questions that I ask that will be like, well, tell me about your distractibility mm-hmm. in various different environments. So if it's difficult to focus at school, but at home you find it very easy to direct your focus, Exactly. then we're probably just thinking about some other issue because mm-hmm. if you have ADHD then generally speaking you it's have it everywhere yeah, yeah. You, have a, mm-hmm. you have trouble focusing your attention in, in every environment uh, and there are other kind of screening quick screening questions I wouldn't diagnose from but I, I would it would be a quick way of getting a sense of what's going on what kinds of questions would you ask to assess that with autism as an adult I might ask questions like tell me about how you connect to other people what are the things that you might do for fun and who do you do it with? Okay. Right? So what would you hear from someone that had undiagnosed autism? Perhaps they might say is one person in particular that they do things with all the time, right? And that and maybe that one thing that they do is along the same lines of things might it be, or that same thing, right? Or it might be something like, I have a difficult time being able to talk to people. I don't have many friends. Right. And I might like, dig in a little more like, well, what do you mean? Liz? Are you are you more of a like everyone that is kind of like an introvert in Seattle? Like, you know what I mean? Or like or is it something a little difficult? Right. Like and so I would look for and some of the lines of questioning that I would have are or does it does it is this person really have difficulty being able to connect socially with people because it's an internal thing around anxiety, pressure, being able to communicate how they feel or an interest perhaps right around things or the lack of interest in what other people might share with them, right? Okay. So that might be 
something that I do. I also would look and, and see like with regard to how do they feel about intimate or close relationships, right? And who these people are um, and how they describe it, right? If it's really like elementary, not even elementary, if it is, if their answer is more, um, a more of an avoidance around having intimate relationships and it's not better explained by like trauma or abuse or like things like that. Like they might say, well... I'll I'll tolerate going to a party or yeah. uh, if the if I have to mm-hmm. or I'll tolerate hanging out with those mm-hmm. people if I have to that um, meaning that's what you mean by avoidant exactly like, like they're on their heels mm-hmm. instead of enjoying themselves or something or making a choice to want to really do that activity okay interesting some people asked about couple therapy <laughs> with people one or more um, people yeah oh, how does that work. It's a newer thing right now, right? Uh, Neurodivergent couple therapy, if you will, right? And so what a lot of that is, is is like slowing down one partner to get to get them to a place to understand who their partner is on the spectrum, right? And accepting that that plays a role in how they show up in the relationship and loving them for that. Not that they don't, but really making it like known that like this is what that is. But also, um, and vice versa, because you know, this is couples work, so there's reciprocity there. Um, working with the person that's on the spectrum to understand that they have to communicate with their partner, right? And, and the best of their abilities and try new things, right? And that they might be pushed to do something different in their relationship because people change, life changes. You have to adapt in order to keep surviving and thriving. Um, and they might need to ask their their partner how to do that or signal to the partner that they're having a hard time doing it. Mm-hmm. Some of it is very basic couples therapy stuff, mm-hmm. right? Okay. But I think with the nuance of knowing how to, to talk about the issues that are very like particular to those on the spectrum are super right. important. Yeah. yeah. I had a couple that I worked with once along these lines and one example is he would at times get hostile mm-hmm. not super hostile but mm-hmm. kind of hostile like they would be socializing with friends mm-hmm. for example mm-hmm. or they'd be at a restaurant or mm-hmm. a park or something and he would just say I'm going to go to the car mm-hmm. if the wife was with friends she's like <laughs> we're we just got here mm-hmm. and we're, mm-hmm. I'm trying to impress my friends and introduce you and you're going to go hang out in the car. <laughs> and he would get angry and mm-hmm. just like, you know, I didn't even want to be here anyway. This restaurant's stupid or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's the surface level. Yeah. But underneath it was being overwhelmed and mm-hmm. being worried that he might not know what to say in a, in a larger group with people he didn't know that exactly. well or that he would be excluded because... He doesn't know these people. And so his go-to coping is to to just get out. And so what we did was, one is to understand that and not interpret it as a hostile act, like Mm -hmm. he Mm -hmm. doesn't want to be married or doesn't care about her feelings. Exactly. Try to elicit him to talk about what was going on for you. And maybe it might be hard for him to know that because he hasn't a lot of experience with that, but it takes a while. And he's like, well, Mm -hmm. I was completely distressed for three weeks leading up to this dinner because I knew it was happening <laughs> and I thought about it all the time and I didn't want to bother you with it because I thought I was being ridiculous for worrying about it mm-hmm. I knew you wanted to have a good time and mm-hmm. I wanted to be a good husband and when we got there it was, the restaurant is not the kind of restaurant I thought it was going to be you, you told me it was going to be this kind of place but it was way more busy than mm-hmm. I thought it was going to mm-hmm. be and way more chaotic mm-hmm. your friends were I didn't feel good around them 
I was getting really angry <laughs> and I was going to the bathroom like yelling into the you know urinal as I'm like what are the fuck am I doing here and I said I got to get out of here I'm going to I'm going to do something bad meaning I you know I'll, yeah. I'll be hostile mm -hmm. directly in front mm -hmm. of these people and so I I just need to go to the car and if I go to the car I can stare at the window and I can calm down and 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 that's what I did and it's like oh okay so you understand and then it's like well, what's another way that we could have dealt with that? Yeah. Like up until the moment, like, mm -hmm. honey, um, it's three weeks out. Could we go to the restaurant beforehand and try run? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about these. What's your expectation about? Is it okay if I don't talk much? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, could I just not talk, or could we limit it to forty-five minutes? Yep. You know, and then uh, can we just say I had an appointment? I have to go. You know, forty-five minutes, and then. I, you know, like prep. Mm -hmm. And could you hold my hand at dinner, you know, or whatever, you know? Could I go to the bathroom? A couple of times, yeah. <laughs> every 10 minutes. Yeah. Like <laughs> and so uh, having that understanding, which is, of course, good for anyone, regardless of what mm -hmm. we're facing, is the treatment, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, the model of couple therapy is the same, but yes. it's just taking the possibilities, of, you know, prompting, sort of priming the pump. Uh, if you're a couple therapist and you can detect these differences, you would be able to, even if the you're thinking, well, the husband, he's got a job, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he's successful, he's smart, he understands how the world works, and not assuming that that translates to social exactly. abilities and lack of distress in those situations. I mean, he might even give lectures to full group full full you know mm -hmm. 300 people in a room mm -hmm. and so well he's obviously very confident but that's different than sitting down to you it might be the opposite sitting Absolutely. down with three people that you don't know is way more comfortable than getting up on stage but you know for him it might be different and so detecting that knowing those differences and then being able to elicit that conversation from the individual just like so what really was going on for you you know like it's okay to talk what was going on so that's what couple therapy looks like for me when mm -hmm. I'm aware of what's happening. So, so Patron Joe from Chicago, this will be my final, final question. Mm -hmm. What do we know about the connection between oxytocin and autism? So there has been actually some clinical trials that have demonstrated that um, the use of oxytocin in, in um, children who are on the spectrum, what it does is it helped regulate them to a particular point so that they can feel less overwhelmed. So, so touch, um, hugging, kissing, like demonstrating that affection seems to come more naturally with that. However, there have been some... Um, Me, they'll administer oxytocin. Yeah, they'll administer oxytocin. Usually it's through um, like the nose, right? Um, I don't know if they have an oral drug of it, but I think it's like a... You sniff it. Yeah, right. like a spray. Um, and what it does is it administers like the love drug into into the body which promotes bonding. The oxytocin is highest um, in individuals when... Um, uh, uh, um, a mom will have a kid, right? That yeah. spurs the bonding, and the kid has high levels of oxytocin because has to bond with their mom during nursing. Interesting. Stuff. Yeah. So I don't know if this is what they're thinking as to how it works, but I could imagine it priming the pump. It Correct. gives a feeling of bonding mm -hmm. artificially, mm -hmm. but then you feel this urge and attention to wanting to do more eye contact or more interacting with people if i was to think about it i would say that there's a lot of needs happening inside of them mm -hmm. and a lot of needs that need to be met but since uh there's a lot of input 
one of their needs of bonding and attachment is mm -hmm. being sacrificed for other mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. because they're, they're paying attention to other kinds of things. Then you give them a little bit of oxytocin and that need gets met a little bit and it's like, yeah, I'm here, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yes, this, that feels nice to feel some bonding, a bonding feeling. Oh, that's right, you're there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's focus on my need regarding bonding and attachment Correct. and uh, maybe I can push aside some of these other distractions and, and actually go for meeting my own needs. You're not, you're not priming them to make them more attachment oriented. You're just helping them to maybe focus on it. Yeah. And then, and then the neural pathway starts to develop and, and be like concrete and knowing that that's something you can do or you can internalize that skill. Um, but the biggest thing I want to say is that it doesn't cure autism right and i think some people um think that it can and that was part of the reason why they did this clinical trial what it does it just makes it easier for those who are on the spectrum to feel good about like enacting this like attachment right this bonding right and feeling good about being able to do that instead of feeling overwhelmed perhaps that it it, it feels too much to be touched right yeah, yeah lots of misinformation correct and pseudoscience around mm -hmm. cures mm -hmm. and causes mm -hmm. that are obvious that we don't have to necessarily go into <laughs> <laughs> vaccines and diet and and these kinds of things mm -hmm. as identified as both cause and cure correct which um has not been shown by the science not at all yeah not at all well thanks for coming on the podcast anthony thank you very much dr honda for having me here yeah and everyone out there please take care of yourself why should they take care of themselves dr anthony because well i'm gonna save rapal's thing but Say <laughs> if you don't give a fuck about yourself how can if you don't give a fuck about the world oh scratch that no no do it again <laughs> if you don't give a fuck about yourself then nobody else will basically yeah.